This episode is brought to you by Universal Television Alternative Studios' That's My Jam, now nominated for Outstanding Game Show. Hosted by Jimmy Fallon and inspired by the most popular Tonight Show games, NBC's That's My Jam features 40 celebrities competing across a variety of games focused on music, dance, trivia, and musical performances, including Don't Drop the Beat, Wheel of Impossible Karaoke, Slay It, Don't Spray It, and more. Catch up on all episodes of That's My Jam on Peacock. From Variety, celebrating more than 118 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. You gotta kind of rip the bandit off, and you really hope that those scenes are early on, because it kind of makes it more awkward the, the closer you get to somebody personally, the more it's like, oh God, here we go. Emmy-nominated Tiny Beautiful Things star Katherine Hahn admits it's not easy to do intimate scenes so early in a series shoot. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this episode of the award-winning Variety Award Circuit Podcast, we talk to Katherine Hahn about excelling at playing women without boundaries and the origin story behind Tiny Beautiful Things. Later, we catch up with producer Ben Winston, who's still adjusting to life after producing The Late Late Show with James Corden, while also enjoying his latest Emmy nominations, including for the Disney Plus special Elton John Live Farewell from Dodger Stadium. It's all next on this edition of the Variety Award Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Catherine Hahn has never hesitated to bear herself, physically or emotionally, and this year she has found herself rewarded with an Emmy nomination for lead actress in a limited or anthology series for her soulful performance in the Hulu limited series Tiny Beautiful Things. Tiny Beautiful Things is based on the 2012 book by Cheryl Strayed, which was culled from her writings from her advice column, Dear Sugar. The series, created by Liz Tigelar, creates a fictionalized version of Strayed's story, with Han playing a character named Claire Kincaid. Claire's path shares a lot in common with Strayed's, including losing her mother at an early age, becoming a young parent herself, and finding her life changed by becoming an anonymous advice columnist. But the series focuses on a turning point in Claire's life as the once promising writer hits a low point, finding both her job and her marriage in jeopardy. How are you both? Great. Fine. Danny blasted porn on the Bluetooth speakers this <laughs> Claire's morning. Claire's vibrator just... literally melted from overuse. Would you believe me now? My life is a mess. My husband kicked me out a few days ago. My daughter hates me. <gasps> Oh, my God. Mom! Threesome is a big leap. Maybe you were subconsciously worried about our little threesome. About what? Me and you and Dad. Ew! No, ew, I don't mean ew, it in that ew. same way. How did I get so far from the person I wanted to be? What would I tell my 22-year-old self? Stop worrying whether you're fat. Who gives a shit? Stop obsessing about your nose. Your nose is perfect. Don't take your mom for granted. She won't be here forever. Blair Marie Pierce is an award-winning essay writer and soon-to-be college graduate with a 4.0. Come on out, Claire! You're one of the best writers I know. An advice column is easy clicks. Okay, take a look. You should be the one doing this. I'm not giving anybody advice. Freddie's Janelle Riley spoke to Han before the start of the SAG after strike, and they talked about a wide range of things, including her co-stars and the actor who plays her character at a younger age, Sarah Pigeon. Janelle began by congratulating Han on her latest nomination. Oh, thank you. I know that was a really, uh, really unexpected and such an incredible, humbling couple of texts received yesterday morning. And so 
So dear. Yeah. So, so dear. I mean, that whole show, all I could think of was Cheryl yesterday morning. I was just so happy um, for, for her because she's such an extraordinary human being. And I was just so happy for her that not only her, this version of herself, but then also her mother and Merritt and Merritt Weaver's amazing performance were, um, were recognized. So it was really beautiful. What was your gateway to Cheryl Strayed? Because I'm embarrassed to admit I came to her a little late because of the movie mm, Wild. Mm-hmm. And I have since, you know, devoured everything she's done. But but when did you, you know, Nia Vardalos calls her blonde Oprah. <laughs> That's funny. I, you know, I was, um, I, I think I came to her a little later too. I saw Wild, um, loved the performance by Reese, but hadn't read the book. And then- read the book, loved it. And then was the same thing with this. I kind of came to it, not knowing anything about Dear Sugar, um, having heard about the rumpus, that literary website, but never having read or, you know, the advice column, or I know I had, uh, that it was based on, uh, the, the tiny, beautiful things was based on a book by Cheryl Strayed, but hadn't read the source material, read the pilot by Liz Tiglar, fell in love with this part of Claire, knew that it was a fictional, you know, obviously kind of had source material, but didn't know how she had kind of, uh, how, what the architecture was. And then after reading the pilot, read the source material, and I was, thought it was an essential human reading. Um, You know, that's the kind of book that you have and just want to pick up and just wherever your finger lands on the page, you just want to start reading and are, I don't know if you've read it, the, but oh, it's, yeah. you have, yeah, isn't it like anywhere? I mean, just anywhere you just, you take something new every time you pick it up. And I'm a little bit adverse to cheese. And there is something about an advice column that sometimes you think, ah, I don't know, but this is, that's why this is so, it, 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 nothing about this is, is that it's, I don't mean literal cheese. We were talking about Italy before. I love cheese, but I mean, you know, (laughs) but I just mean this, there's, there's such, there's such unflinching honesty in these responses and the way that she, um, the way that she opens herself up and excavates herself to these letter writers that you feel as a human being so seen and so not alone on the planet that you just you feel spiritually so much richer for it I think in these in her writing and so I was so you just feel so great so much gratitude and so um just so sustained like we kept using the word nourished like you just feel like nourished when you read uh, her her work because you just feel um, less alone and you, know, you feel okay to be uh, in the in the kind of messy gr- gross middle like the you know that you're not have like there is you know there's it's no one is everyone is always in the, in the middle there. If you peel behind the surface of anybody, that's always, it's a, it's a disaster. It's a disaster under there. We're always, you know, kind of in process of some kind. And she just lets that be exactly what it is and exactly. Okay. And her responses are just the cold, hard, beautiful truth. And so it's in that raw and unflinching honesty that is, 
so there's some, something so refreshing about it that is just um that is uh I, I was just as taken as I, as all of her other um as her other fans. When I started to discover her, I started to realize that I had quoted her a lot without knowing it. You know how you find mm. those quotes online and you yeah. post them on your ins. Well, you don't because you won't get on social media, but you I post. Won't. <laughs> you I post just them. won't do it. <laughs> Come on, just Instagram. Instagram's a nice place. I know. You know, I've heard Instagram is a nice place, but I just, I don't know why. It's been so long now, Janelle, that I just won't do it. But my kids keep being like, Come on. But now I think it's gone beyond that. And they're like, it's cool that you don't, mom. Because I think they'd probably be horrified if all of a sudden I jumped on. (laughs) There there was a horrifying day when I saw my mom's friend request pop up on Facebook. And I was like, no, my secret's out. (laughs) (laughs) But I would would quote things from her. I would pass around these quotes. And then when I, first when I read Wild, because she has a very famous passage about what if I forgive myself. You know, that that I remember. And I remember going like, oh, this is it's like doing it backwards, kind of like um, mm-hmm. I compare it to The Simpsons. Like I started realizing all the things The Simpsons were parodying as I got older and saw the Kubrick mm-hmm. movies or the things they were referencing. And I realized I've been quoting this woman for years without really mm-hmm. knowing her story or who she is. And mm-hmm. she's just she just has a way of putting things that is is so beautiful. Yeah. Simple. And so I guess she's, I think, what was it that my favorite quote that I, um, mm, uh, oh God, I have to find it. Cause I've, but I had just sent it yesterday to somebody. Cause I was, um, I think it's like, stay grateful, forgive yourself. It's just like a tiny, I know. And it's just, it's, that's what, what I was kind of ringing in my, just like kind of ringing through my head all day yesterday. Cause it was just so, um, so true and felt so like, the purest place to be and in the, on such a a beautiful, humbling day um, of such sweetness. And um, yeah, she's, she's remarkable. And you're right. uh, There's so, so many of those, so many of those quotes. Um, So many. Yeah. Does she talk like that in real life? Like, does she just walk into a room and say with, like, pl- with platitudes? Yeah, no, she's beautiful platitudes. I know, no, she, but yeah, but yeah, she, she, I think the writers would, you know, she was in the writer's room for this and uh, not in any kind of way that was in, I think I'm sure the writers were, would say they were intimidated at the beginning, but then I think she was there to learn. She'd never been in a writer's room before and to have Dear Sugar in the room, of course, you're going to, with any, you know, thing you're going through, you're going to turn to her for advice. But I, you know, I think she's such a generous person. And I, I think that it was, she's an incredibly articulate person, but she's also a very vulnerably honest person. So she's, you know, she's there in the muck. So you don't feel ever like, you know, there's somebody that has all the answers. She's just there with as many questions as we all have, which I think is also makes it that much more. Um, you just fall in love that much deeper with her because she, no one has the, you know, she's there to say like, no, she doesn't have any more answers than anybody else. I think she's just the most so beautifully articulate and, um, and her gift, her I think what, you know, I want to cry thinking about her always is because her sharing of herself so completely and is such a, is such a gift because, you know, I keep thinking and I keep 
saying like it's, you know, we've all suffered some sort of unimaginable loss as she describes it in some way or another, like whatever that is for us, we all have that in us, um, whatever that is. And so her story of losing her mom, we all have, have that, whatever that is, that kind of calcified us in some way, whenever that was in our life. And, and her sharing of that in such detail, that calcification, her defenses around it, and then her being able to see the light and the pathway through is, and her continued journey is an acknowledgement that the grief will always be there. That is, is such a, is such a gift, her sharing of it. And so I'm forever changed by this experience of making this. I think we all are. It was a profound, uh, summer shooting this um and and i and i think you know on a that's a micro level on a macro level it's any you know it's anyone that's had a the, the pleasure of reading her her work is I, I think you are definitely changed and moved in ways that you don't anticipate before cracking open that her work i mean i've been in a room with her a couple times and to be honest mm. this this very rarely happens I've been too intimidated to say anything. I think once I shouted blonde Oprah and ran away. <laughs> I mean, it's a seismic. <laughs> there's a, yeah, she'd be like, there's only one Oprah, but she would be, but there is like a seismic. You do feel like a molecularly, like a shift. Yeah. Only one up, only one Cheryl, but there is like a, there is like a seismic molecular shift of, you know, the energy when she walks into the room for sure. And um, but she's also such a soft and generous and warm, dear presence. She was so happy yesterday and so has been so supportive of this and so supportive of this version of Claire that I, and the remarkable Sarah Pigeon who I share Claire with, she was so supportive of our, of our journey and our, um, and the remarkable, um, writing of Liz and this writer and this writer's room. She has was so not uh, subscriptive in any way, and really allowed us to take flight. You know, she was there just to support. Um, although she did, you know, there was one scene. Of course, the one time she showed up, the first time she showed up on set happened to be the scene where um, it's the ghost ship episode where it shows my my what if uh, if if I had chosen a life without my without having my daughter. And if I had actually maybe taken a, you know, gone to the North Pole or had gone to the Arctic and it shows me with um, like a backpack on, like kind of a nod to wild. And I'm, I'm hiking to the top of this like snowy mountain. And, and she happened to be there as I was putting on my like fake backpack that was like stuffed with probably, you know, plastic bags and maybe some books at the bottom and like. And she was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And she, Cheryl Strayed, had to come over and help adjust my freaking backpack. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is the one, this is the first time she comes on set. But it was, it was, could not have been better. Of course, I'm like sobbing because I can't believe that that I'm, this is like, that she's there for that scene that I'm looking at her, that this, we're 
having the sliding doors moment where I'm playing this fiction. I'm actually playing her sliding doors life in this fictional version of her life. And yet I'm doing this version that she had lived. It was the craziest, craziest um, moment. Uh, and we'll never forget it. Did you hear they just found the shoe that, that Reese threw in wild? No yeah. See, Wait, the one know. that Reese threw? Yeah, the one that she threw when filming the movie. Some hiker found it recently and recognized it as the shoe from wild. See, if you were on Twitter, you would know these things. Oh, my God. Wait, that is a really awesome and specific, fantastic. Th- that is awesome. So not even Cheryl's shoe, but Reese's yes. shoe. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. So awesome. <laughs> You've worked with so many amazing people. Uh, I, I, I would find it hard to believe you'd be intimidated by anyone. Is there is there anyone who on set that you've had that fangirl moment with? I have. I get intimidated bef- always in social situations, but once we <laughs> always, I feel like where is the verb? Um, like I don't know what now if it's just now spilling out of my mouth or if there's like a verb in there. But once we start working and I'm inside of a character and I'm looking into the eyeballs of my a beautiful fellow actor and they are inside of their character, then I I I we're just we're workers do you know we're actors doing that the work. But I but beforehand. Oh, I mean, before they, before somebody says action, I am um, tongue tied. Yeah, for sure. Until we get to that, like, you know, that, that time in the shoot where it feel where we're slap happy and giddy and we're hanging out on the, you know, the chairs between takes, like making each other laugh. Then I'm, I, before we get to that, uh, I'm usually very tongue tied and, um, uh, a little bit off, off of myself, but, and, but then, but then forget it. I'm, yeah. We're all class clouds. I was thinking, how do I, how do I word this? You, you often play women with very, without boundaries. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about climbing all over, uh, uh, John C. Riley and stepbrothers and yes. you sort of excel at those characters. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you must have to just get right to it. There can't be any shyness. Yeah. You got to kind of rip the bandit off and you really hope that those scenes are early on because <laughs> really? it's, yes, because the, the, because it kind of makes it more awkward. The, the, the closer you get to somebody personally, the more it's like, Oh God, here we go. Like it's kind of easier when those scenes are, I remember when I was doing private life with the great Tamara Jenkins. So I get to see tonight actually like small world, but she, I remember the first um, scene we shot, I think was a scene in which I just like come out with my pants off to talk about a painting that's, a, a nude painting that's up for when the social worker is coming off. And I'm like, why is this? So I, I was very glad that we just kind of got that over with before Paul and I got to know each other. It was just made it much easier than if it had been, you know, much later in the shoot and you know, we had known each other. So it was like, um, some, sometimes it's easier uh, to just kind of just rip the bandit off and just get to it. But you, you know, it's like a, it's always like, you know, whatever but you know it's a you know you get it done before lunch it's fine got your intimacy coordinator it's all good (laughs) not after lunch after lunch is a bad time oh it's after lunch before lunch it doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) uh you referenced playing sort of this version of cheryl and i've told you this before but something that i love so much about tiny beautiful things is that 
I've loved it in every iteration, you know, uh, mm. as the Dear Sugar podcast, as a book. I thought the play was beautiful. So when I saw they were doing a limited series, mm. you know, I, I was excited, but I was also a little worried because mm. I was like, how do you build on that? How do you improve on it? And I love that it took this fictionalized turn, obviously mm-hmm. with Cheryl's DNA all over it. Um, but were you familiar with the other iterations? No, I never, I had never seen the play. I heard they had done one, but I, I had never um, seen or read that adaptation. So this is the only one I had seen before reading the source material. So I had no, um, nothing else to to go, to go on. But so I just fell in love with um, this Claire. And I knew that after talking with Cheryl, then it was important to her, you know, that there be a few things, fundamental things that matched up with her life story. That Claire um, loses her mother at a very pivotal age. Um, that Claire didn't come from extraordinary means. And that Claire become a mother at a young age, youngish age. And, um, and after that, you know, whatever happens to her and, you know, maybe she flirted with heroin. We always talked about that, that she had like a flirtation with heroin <laughs> before bec- and before becoming a mom and that everything else after that is, was, was Liz in the writer's room mm-hmm. um, and their experiences that they kind of carved through that. And it was also Liz kind of came up with the idea of like, what would happen like that? This was Cheryl's ghost ship story. Like what would happen to Cheryl if Cheryl hadn't hiked the Pacific, um, the Pacific press way. And so they, this was uh, kind of her ghost ship story. I think I just botched that. I'm like Pacific Crest <laughs> Highway. Pacific, no. yeah, no, I always call it the yeah, the Pacific. It's not the PC Highway, and it's not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> that would be not as picaresque. Um, but sh- so this was um, this was kind of that you know that's kind of where Liz I think and the writers started. So I, you know, as an actor, you just base, you have the script in front of you. And that's, that was my Bible was the script. I didn't really use, I didn't really need to use the source material because all I needed was what um, Liz and the writers had, had um, fictionalized and come up with. And uh, so after I, you know, I read it a a few times, the tiny beautiful things, and then I put it down. Um. But I, so, no, I had not read the other adaptations, but I, I kind of what I realized was going to be my my challenge in this. And what was really difficult was to not actually and what was, you know, ultimately the hardest thing for Claire, <laughs> of course, was that I wasn't there for the flashbacks like my mom had died and it was became very painful. Like I didn't have a chance. I wanted to work with Merritt. I wanted to work with Sarah. I wanted to work with. And it became very painful that there were these kind of two movies happening. You know, there was the the flashback track and then this present track. And it felt very, um, you know, there would be kind of, we would be these ships in the night. And I wanted to have this connection so badly to what they were doing in the hospital room or what they were doing, what they were building together with Owen, who played my brother. And I felt I could, you know, see them through so far away. And it felt... um, it was uh, that was something unexpected to feel like, of course, that's that's grief. You could just feel that it's and um, as much as 
I loved, I mean, God, did I love working with Quentin and Tanzan who played my family there's And we had such amazing, I was so proud of the chemistry. We just kind of ha- happened for us so instantaneously. And um, I loved that family unit so much. I adore them. And they're such incredible actors. That loss of, I really did feel that loss of not being there with, with Sarah and Merritt. And I just took a while for me to realize like, of course, that's grief. And that is, that's just exactly what Claire would be, what was Claire was feeling. It was, it I was mean, intense. I'm curious because Sarah Pigeon, who plays the younger Claire, I really, I told you this, but I really thought that was you at first. Mm. She looks so much like you and has your mannerisms. Oh my God, I'm so flattered by that. <laughs> no, I really did. I was like, oh, I wish I had an iota of her grace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think she might be actually taller than you. That might be the only thing, which I didn't know until yes, I saw no, her in person. she definitely is taller than me. I'm yeah. like, oh, I guess I shrank a foot and a half. <laughs> but she's, <laughs> but yeah, no, she's extraordinary. And she was, you know, we had like a couple of um, sessions together, like movement sessions and like kind of, and it was important for us not to have any sort of, you know, the onus of having mimicry be off of it. Like I kept, we kept being like, let's not worry about mimicking each other and just try to find like each other's essence because 20 years is a long time. Like people, you know, I've dyed my hair a bazillion times since I was, you know, 20 years old. And I- I've gone through so many skin phases and I- like, let's not worry about any sort of, you, you know, my defense is, you know, you like you harden your defense. You know, I like I kept using the word calcification. Like, I just feel like my my sense of humor became hard. All that stuff like I buy like that. What happens after you've suffered some sort of extreme loss or you have some sort of like sh- huge opening that you that is a like a loss like that is you you um you know, I went to Pompeii when I was in Italy over the summer and I just kept, you know, seeing those figures of those, um, the people that had died, that they put those plaster casts around. And I kept thinking of Claire in terms of that, like that there is just, she just built up herself around this loss, this like empty, um, this emptiness. And I just feel like that's kind of where, you know, she did it with like a sense of humor and sleeping around and alcohol and kind of, you know, she kind of throws herself at that same age. Like, you know, she's basically an adolescent parenting an adolescent. And, uh, you know, her daughter is waking up to the, for her child is waking up to the fact that she, her mother is as immature, more immature than she is and, or they are. And uh, it is very confusing for Claire. It's all very, and uh, so it was very, I was excited for and very in awe of Sarah and how she was able to metabolize that and come to it at such a, um, to see what I had lost with that loss because she um, has so, had so much promise as a 20. and. Um, you know, she, the first couple episodes, she was by the monitor watching me. And, you know, I think she was able to absorb mannerisms and that kind of thing through that. And, you know, we kind of did a little bit of osmosis that, that way, but we really didn't try to get too, um, 
specific with it just because it would ruin like a, a, a magic that I think was already like this there. Yeah. Sometimes when you talk about it, it makes it go away. Yeah. 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 So the mystery is and any kind of like any kind of difficulty that kind of came up was exactly the difficulty that I think needed to be there because it was hard it was definitely like the hard stuff was was really hard. But I think ultimately it was what the thing required. I think that people are much better now about seeing, you know, actors go from drama to comedy. But like as someone who made such a big impression on comedy and with these and I say this as a compliment, wonderfully messy women. You know, um, you seem to ease people accepted you in dramas pretty quickly. Did you ever worry about being typecast or, you know, getting uh, I mean, being typecast, you're still being cast is the good news. But no, I never really uh, I mean, it was really Janelle, just one foot. I was just kind of for a while there. I didn't even have the luxury of thinking about being typecast. It was just kind of like where I got cast. (laughs) Honestly, so I kind of went. But then I definitely when I was doing a lot of those big swing movies I did fear am I too big like I you know there was a lot of that of 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 being excited about getting a little more grounded again or feeling closer to the core and wondering if I would have those opportunities again and but never I don't think it was like a fear of being typecast it was always just like a um I suppose pressure I put myself on myself to make sure that I didn't lose that um, attachment because you do get, there was a, there was definitely a chapter there where I, I got very excited by the laughter uh, that I was receiving and it it took myself out of myself, I think. And um, so I was excited to, to, to go back to, to anchoring myself to the, the center with some of these, these parts that happen to be in smaller, smaller, I guess, smaller pieces. And then to be able to take what I've learned there and go to like the bigger canvases. So, you know, it's a, I'm still learning. It's still like a learning process. And I love my job so freaking much that it's every, every, every gig, I feel like I've been learning more and more. I mean, you did have Step Brothers and Revolutionary Road in the same year. So I guess if anyone was going to doubt your range, they could just look at 2008. I know. That was that was a dreamy, dreamy range. I mean, I mean range, exactly. That was a dreamy, dreamy summer. And I had a little, little baby boy at the same time. And so like that was also just a, a crazy uh, realization that of that I could that that could all happen. Like I, that was something I never, um, felt so much freedom as a performer. I was, it felt like I was in a rep company, which was really fun. You have done so many memorable characters and so many different genres. When, when people run into you on the street, what is it they, they most want to bring up or they most want to talk about? That's an awesome question. There had been for a while and a and now it's coming up again as Parks and Rec, which makes yes. me so happy. I don't, people love that show. And it makes me so, so happy because I really wasn't in that many episodes even. But like um, that show really had made such a cultural um, impact and it couldn't m- make me happier because those are some of my closest pals on the planet and um, still and love that group of people so much and um, was such a great experience and to come in and as a guest star and be so welcomed by that cast and uh, that group of writers and 
everybody to and to have it be such still um have such resonance was is still really exciting and like to think like wow how present that was as the show prescient i think it's the word um is pretty crazy just to think of who jennifer barkley would be today is pretty amazing have you been to catalina because you know they everybody there on catalina has these hats that say it's the fucking Catalina the, wine mixer. It's the oh. fucking Catalina wine mixer. Can I tell you something that that used to be when I, when I first had my daughter, my would take my son on these little like mommy and me trips just so he wouldn't feel so jealous that mom had like, and so that's where we would go. And like just the two of us, we would take like the little speedboat over there to Catalina and haven't been in so long. Um, but we'd go there all the time. And then I did Step Brothers, and then it was such an can't believe that we haven't yeah. been back since. That's Catherine Hahn, Emmy nominated for Tiny Beautiful Things, now streaming on Hulu. After the break, Emmy nominated producer Ben Winston. From Los Angeles, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Universal Television Alternative Studios Baking It, hosted by Maya Rudolph and Amy Poehler, now both nominated for Outstanding Host for a Reality or Competition Program. Baking It is bursting with exploding cakes, banging with smash bakes, and booming with laughs. Nothing is off the table, as creator Amy Poehler's love of crafting and storytelling shines through in each delectable dish. Baking It is now streaming on Peacock. And we're back. It's the Variety Award Circuit Podcast, and I'm Michael Schneider. It's already been another busy year for Ben Winston. He's already won 12 Emmys over the years, and now he's in the hunt for two more at least. Via the Outstanding Variety Special Live category for Elton John Live, Farewell from Dodger Stadium, which he executive produced, and for the Short Form Comedy, Drama, or Variety Series category for Apple TV Plus's Carpool Karaoke, the series, which he also EPs. Both come from his production company, Fullwell 73, where he's currently working on everything from the next Grammy Awards to a lot more. But he's also still coming down from his lengthy stint executive producing The Late Late Show with James Corden, which ended its run in April. Corden is now moving back to the UK, but Winston is happy to now make LA home and continue to expand his company. We recently spoke about what's next for him how he's adjusting to life after late night, and of course, everything that went into producing the Elton John special, and even what a crazy day that was for Disney. Winston was just back from London and fighting some serious jet lag. Well, I'm off to, um, I'm going to go and see Taylor Swift tonight at SoFi, and I've, I've heard that it's a three and a half hour show, which I'm really excited for, but I was just thinking that it's, for me on my, my body clock right now, it's going to finish at 8.30 in the morning yeah. or something crazy like that, or 8 in the morning. So I'm, I wonder how I'll be, but I think I'll be, I mean, that's the best way to beat jet lag is get out and do yeah. fun things. Either you do that or you're going to be the old man falling asleep at oh, the man, Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> Was that the guy who runs the Grammys asleep in the corner of the Taylor Swift concert? It wouldn't be the best look. That'll get back it to Tay Tay. Yeah. It would not be a good look. No, no, I'm really excited about going. Can't wait. Yeah. Are you able to enjoy concerts anymore? Or yeah. are you always sort of looking at the production? Good. <laughs> I think if they're good, you really enjoy them. Yeah. I think that's a sign. But I think anybody who makes television would say the same thing. Great TV is TV that people who make TV switch off and really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it isn't great, you sort of notice it more and you can't enjoy it as much. Yeah, and you- I think it's probably the same with concerts. I think, I mean, I haven't seen this Taylor show, but there's been some amazing shows this summer Taylor's obviously, you know, you can't move on social media without seeing clips of that. Beyonce's show looks incredible. Harry Styles' show I went to quite a few times and loved. So there's been some amazing, some real big artists that are out at the moment performing. And um, yeah, it's been a great time to be a concert goer and see all these 
performers live it, it really yeah. has been yeah no especially i mean we're still sort of uh post pandemic so it's been this feels like this is the year that finally concerts came back yeah everybody's out you know adele's in vegas and uh, yeah it's it's been yeah you too in vegas as well yeah, i'm excited to see how that works at the sphere yeah that'll be interesting yeah yeah I feel like that'll be a, a TV special eventually, right? Although I don't know how you capture that experience of something like The Sphere on yeah, television. It'll be interesting. I actually had a tour of The Sphere a few weeks ago and um, I went round it and it's a, I mean, it's a behemoth of a building. It's really amazing. I'm not, I'm, I'm excited to see how they're going to, what they're going to do with that space nightly because it's, it's so huge, but it'll be a real event. It'll yeah. be a real event space. Yeah. No, it's it's a good time, especially because there's nothing else going on. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely in, right in the world. Yeah, the music artists do not need to be on strike, and so therefore, rather than filming anything, we can just go to concerts instead. That's yeah. what we'll do. Yeah. Well, the the timing of the end of the Late Late Show, obviously, sort of. Uh, you, I'm sure you had that in the back of your mind. There was that 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 deadline that there was potential of a strike happening, or was it just serendipity that you were able to finish the show before? You wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, it's so insane. We decided our finale date a year in advance. James and I and Rob Crabb, we sat in a room and we looked at the diary and it was originally going to be a couple of weeks earlier. And then I looked at it and I said, would you mind if we delayed that by a couple of weeks? Because it was Passover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, all my family are going to be over and I'm going to have a house full of like 15 people who are staying with me for Passover. And I just don't think mentally I can cope with my house full of my family and also dealing with the finale. Chaos, yeah. Chaos, chaos. Um, and, uh, and so James and I and Rob, we were like, no, well, let's just delay it. Let's just do it. And we picked a random date. We picked a random Thursday. It was the 28th of April. That was going to be our finale. And then CBS offered us a primetime special as well that same night. So we did sort of two hours of TV with all that stuff of Tom Cruise in The Lion King and the Adele Carpool and Harry and Will Ferrell on the couch. Um, and we could never have imagined that if we were still on air today, that still would have been our last show because on that Monday night, that followed it was when the strike started. Yeah, yeah. So incredibly, we've made the same amounts of shows as everybody else, but yet they've sort of been on strike since. And it, one of the things that has actually softened the emotional blow of not having the Late Late Show on anymore, which I so loved, and it was just the time of our lives doing that and making that show. One of the things that's really softened that blow is going, well, we wouldn't be able to be on air yeah. anyway. Yeah. So yeah. I just don't need to deal with all of that. Who pays who? How are we funding it? Negotiating with the network? You know, all of that um, emotional turmoil, really, um, that comes along with something like that. And, and we've sort of not be, had to worry about that with that specific show because we finished 24 hours before that strike came in. But it was – I'd love to say we predicted it and aren't we clever, but not in any way with a year to go did we realize that that was the date yeah, yeah. that the strike might happen. Well, it's sort of just great relief because otherwise you would have never gotten a finale. If you had planned to do the finale in, say, May or something, yeah. then that just would have been it. It really would have been. It's so strange because also end of April was a really weird time. I mean it's not like the end of a season. It's right. like not like the end of the summer. You know, so the only reason we chose it was because James wanted to move back to the UK and he knew he was going to go back in June and July and he didn't want to finish the show the moment that we didn't want to finish the show and then have to get on a plane. He wanted a month, six weeks, eight weeks to like plan everything, pack up the house, sell the house, do all of the stuff that right. you need to do. So that's the real reason that we randomly chose April. 
um, to finish. So yeah, like you know, it all it all worked out. We got the finale that we always dreamt of, um, and uh, and and yeah, I feel for feel for all the crews and the teams that aren't in work right now, as well as of course all the people who are on strike. But but I guess for our team and our crew, they were they were ready for it because they knew we were always finishing right. on April twenty eighth. So although you know they had opportunities to to make sure they were going to be okay in advance. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's been a couple of months, and you've been busy traveling, etc. Um, time to sort of process it now. Have you moved on? Uh, do you, do you think much about that? That uh, is is it one of those things where after having done it for so many years, it's hard to turn that that part of your life off, that part of your brain off. Um, I think about it a lot. I think about it whenever anything happens in the news or a music video happens that I think is really funny or there's a spoof that I think of of a new TV show or, you know, a finale of something that I'm like, oh, that we could do this about that. And then I suddenly remember, oh, no, we don't have a show anymore. Um, so I think it it was such a luxury that anything could happen in the news or in popular culture or whatever else. And then we'd immediately go, well, let's, let's do this about that on the show tomorrow. So I think that's something that I hugely feel, but like I say, with the strike, I'd be feeling that anyway. So again, that softens that, that specific blow. Um, And my office is very different. I mean, you know, we're still at television city, me and the Fullwell team, um, our company, but yet there's 120 people that we used to be there with every day and they're not there. Uh, And so I definitely miss that, you know, family of people that work with us on that show, you know, every day for eight years. I miss them hugely. Of course, we're still in touch, but it's not, you know, it's nothing like it was, of course. Um, and um, I, I guess when I see clips and so many clips like pop up on my TikTok, which I think, you know, says more about me that I, you know, like to watch our own stuff because it keeps popping up on my algorithm. <laughs> but so much of it, like when I look back now, makes me, you know, so proud. You know, I look at, you know, like Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, Crosswalk the Musical with James came up on my feed the other day. And then, you know, Tom Cruise and James jumping out of a plane popped up. And then, you know, a, 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 you know, just so many of those moments and clips and things that we did. And, and I think when we were in it so much, you can't really sit back and, you know, be pleased with it or admire it or think you've done well because you have another show tomorrow. It's the best and worst thing about late night. The great thing is if it goes well, you know, it's gone well and you've got the opportunity. If it goes bad, it doesn't matter. You've got another show tomorrow. But if it goes well, you can't enjoy it because you've got another one tomorrow. So it's been really nice to sort of sit back and look at stuff without the pressure of thinking, oh, we've got to do one right now and just appreciate what a great time that was in all of our lives. And those repeats will probably keep airing forever because (laughs) – Yes. Yeah, that's uh, true. I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard anything about when the – when the at midnight show is going to start, I don't even think they've officially they announced. They have not it's got, officially yeah, announced it. Can yeah, you believe, I, I mean, now they can't. So I guess so, right? So I, I don't even know. Yeah, I've got no idea about that at all. I really, I'm really not in the loop on that. Um, do they come to you at all to say, "Hey, do you want to like still program these repeats? Do like a week of blank uh, themed episodes?" Well, or? I think they do. Nick Bernstein always oversaw that anyway yeah. for us. Our VP of late night West Coast. Uh, we all, I have to say the well, full title because we always used to mock exactly. him on the show. Well known uh, for anyone. Uh, who just so you know, there show. wasn't a there wasn't a president, uh, and uh, just he was VP <laughs> to no one, and it was only West Coast. Yeah, but, and he only had one show. So, but you know, I, whatever. I'm quibbling quibbling over over nothing. But yes, so I think he was always the one who used to program those anyway yeah. and send it to me, and I used to pretend that I looked at it, and I'd email him back going, "Yeah, this looks Sounds great," good. and of course I would never look at it. Um, 
which I think he knew. So I think he's continuing to do that. Um, and I'll probably see him today when I go back into the office for the first time in eight weeks. Because like I say, I've been away and uh, so I'll catch up with him today. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe he'll tell you about his Nick Bernstein week that I'm sure he's scheduling at some oh, point. I, truthfully, I think he probably only schedules our show for when he was in it. For right. those who never saw <laughs> our show, Nick became a big figure of fun within <laughs> the show. And James would enjoy uh, ribbing him quite a lot. And uh, and and you'd think that Nick wouldn't enjoy it. But truthfully, he enjoyed it more than anybody could ever enjoy that sort no, of thing. It was, yeah. it was, it it was, was a, great fun. Though. It was a beautiful thing. Um, so so you're going to sort of maintain mostly living in L.A.? Yeah, or? I live in L.A. Yeah. yeah. James has moved home. I live here. Um, you know, we, we're fortunate that we run quite a few different shows at Fullwell um, in, in sort of a variety of, of spaces, from scripted to unscripted, um, from live to reality. And um, – and it's been great for us, and we've got a really wonderful team of people who who, who work with us. And um, yeah, I, I've got no intentions of moving back just yet. Yeah, uh, I think at some point maybe I do miss lots about London, but right now this is the place where I I, I need to be. It's where my wife's really happy. My kids are Americans because you know my wife and I moved here nine years ago. We said we were staying for nine months, and now we have two American children yeah, I... who are very proud to be American. They remind me a lot that they're American. <laughs> Um, and they don't sound anything like me or Meredith, which is just so strange. That that's um, that's got to be interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah. No, we're here for the time being. Yeah. Well, we were talking about concerts. Yes, and of course. One of the biggest concerts, I mean, I've ever seen that I've ever had a, the privilege of of attending was, of course, the the Elton John finale at Dodger yeah. Stadium. Yes. Um. I mean, my God, that that was a feat. So congratulations on the Emmy nomination. Thank you very much. It really uh, meant a great deal to us to get that Emmy nod, actually. Yeah. No, I can imagine. I mean, there was a lot of work going into it. Now, of course, one of the reasons why I remember that night so well is right before the show, my phone burning up because Bob Chapek was suddenly out at Disney. <laughs> yes. We had two <laughs> seats that we had to fill that night suddenly. <laughs> so that was a night to remember. Yeah. Um, I was actually like at an event beforehand with a bunch of Disney execs who all at the same time, their phones started burning up and they're all looking at their phones and they all turned sheet white. I mean, it was, it was an evening to remember. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was with, um, yeah, so we did obviously, yeah, that's, uh, we, we were making the, um, final night at Dodger stadium. He, he did three nights there. And um, this was the third night, and it was going to be Disney's first ever live yeah. global broadcast. Um, so, well, it was. What I was saying it was going to be. It was. Yeah. Um, which meant a lot of the Disney team were there. You know, Dana was there, and Craig Erwick, and Rob Mills, and so many of the uh, of the Disney team. Nicole and Mark, who we work with so much, uh, really great, great people. They've got a great team over there at Disney. They're the most supportive executives. They really are. And so I was in the booth, and we'd done a. Well, I can talk more about it in a bit, but we'd done one the night before, like a fake one, like a dress run, mm -hmm. and it couldn't have gone worse. I mean, it was really a disaster for us in every way. Elton was fine. We were just a mess. And, um, and of course, you don't have another chance to like get it right or whatever because it is just a live show, and we were very aware of the pressure of being the first ever live Disney show on Disney+. Plus. So what were the sticking points? What, what was sort of – what was the disaster of the, the dry run? Um. I think that the camera team – I think there was many things. The camera team weren't shooting exactly what 
our director Paul Dugdale had in mind. I think we'd missed a lot of cues on uh, where we were cutting. We'd miss explosions. It didn't sound right. It sounded very, very empty because it's incre- one of that one of the most difficult things to do when you look at a venue like Dodger Stadium and you're doing a live broadcast is actually to record the sound. And I don't mean the sound of Elton. That's easy. He's singing right into a microphone. But if you're in this space where there's a hundred thousand people, how do you mic that to make it sound like a hundred thousand people? Because you don't you have the ability of hanging microphones from a ceiling like you would do in a studio or in an arena. Right. Um, so it's actually a really difficult thing to record the sound of it. So when I watched it back that night, because we, we, we did it the night before, I think it was a Saturday night was the dress run. And he obviously he did the whole performance to a full crowd and it was a great performance from him. And then we all watched it back at midnight until like two in the morning and it sounded empty. It sounded like no one was cheering because we hadn't recorded it. That was a big problem for me, which Mike Abbott and the team got right for the next day. We hit our marks the next day on fireworks. The cameramen had got it. They'd, they'd got the gremlins out of their system that they were really shooting it in an impressive way because, you know, that show, it was so important for many reasons uh, uh, and i'm getting sidetracked because this was actually about me seeing the disney team when they heard that bob got <laughs> but it's all related but, but it's all related so i mean that show technically firstly you've got the technical difficulty of you're doing it live and we've seen that some of the streamers have had problems going live before um so we had that but we also had it on a global scale so that was a real significant thing we also had the historical context of it in that Elton was famous for that Dodgers show. I'm going to get the year wrong of of of, of that first show at Dodgers that was that those iconic Terry O'Neill right. photographs. It's like seventy five. I think so. Yeah. Seventy five is what I was about to say. And I didn't say it in case I got it wrong and everybody would listen. Yeah. It wasn't seventy five. It was seventy two. But I think it was seventy five. Those Dodgers concerts, and um, it was such an iconic moment for him in that sort of sequined Dodgers outfit. And it's such a huge part of history. So to go back and redo that concert, however many years later we are, and I'll let you do the maths on that from 20. I'm a journalist. I can't 70, do math. 75 to 20. Many, many years. So there was that significance. There's also the significance because it was the last show he was ever going to do in America um, because it was his farewell tour. So this was really capturing a moment of history. Um, so you go with those moments, the fact that it was – first ever live stream his last ever show and the significance of it being dodgers you definitely feel the pressure of it but that night it just couldn't have gone better and i remember sitting in the truck with paul dugdale and you're you know also it's a three-hour show so you're really in it like you can never take your eye off the ball on a live show because you've you you it's not like you know in between the songs you get a commercial break so you've always got to be cutting at the right time you've always got to make sure that you're capturing that moment and you've also got to add an extra real big excitement to it because, you know, we had 28 cameras that night plus a helicopter and a couple of drones. That's a lot of operations. That's a lot of team to be talking in their ears of. Um, and to really capture the concert of one man sitting at a piano and make sure that you capture that beautiful intimacy of a man, a maestro, sat at a piano just so it feels like just you and him in the living room. That intimacy is important. But at the same time, You've got to be able to cut and show the scale of what was happening with those 100,000 people in this yeah. in this stadium. And so, you know, every song had to feel like its own music video almost. And, of course, you're cutting it live. Um, so we were really happy with the way it went. We were, you know, there was a lot of punching the air and high-fiving at the end of it and knowing that it had gone so well on, on television. 
Um, and it was fun all the time. I remember I had like a panel of uh, all the audience cams just to my left and I would like spot like, oh, there's Taron Egerton, you know, <laughs> dancing yeah. or, or, or there's, you know, Neil Patrick Harris or there's Paul McCartney. Can we get a shot of Paul McCartney? And like, we just couldn't get, he was behind a pole and we just couldn't get him. It was like, <laughs> this fun of like the liveness of like trying to take these shots as Doug Dale did so well. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so there was lots of, lots of wonderful moments that night, lots of pressure. But back to what I was saying was we, it hadn't gone so well. We had a long meeting on the Sunday afternoon and I sort of just went for a walk just to clear my head really and get ready for the night. Uh, I think Gabe Turner, who co-EP'd it with me, my partner at Fullwell, we just sort of went for a walk and a stroll to sort of calm down, get rid of nerves, think about what are we missing? What do we need to remember? It's always a good thing. We found ourselves at this hospitality tent and go in, in, have a drink. And then we see all the Disney team and they're all so excited and, you know, wishing us luck. And they're so grateful for all the work we've put in. And then suddenly you see all these phones start flashing and they're all like go off into their own corners and like start these whispers. And at one point, somebody from Disney, I won't tell you who, one of them came over and says, Disney, we've just been hacked. And I said, oh, no. He said, yeah, we've been hacked. And selfishly, you think, oh, no, what have I ever sent Disney that is now <laughs> yeah, going to be exactly. on a public domain somewhere? And he's like, yeah, we, we, we've been hacked. And, you know, he said, it's, we just all got an email from Bob Iger saying he's coming back to work. And, you know, Bob's gone and the new, and the old Bob is back. And I was like, oh, wow. And then he sort of, it dawned on him that actually, no, 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 this was real. Um, meanwhile, my first thought was I had four great seats that I'd save for Bob Chapek. So I was wondering who was who I could give those four great seats to. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was a really, uh, it was a really dramatic night, but it was, it was great fun for being in a truck and making a show with an icon. We're honored to get the Grammy nod, uh, Emmy nod, I should say. Um, it is extra exciting because he's won a, Elton John has won a Tony. He's won a Grammy. He's even won an Oscar, but he's never won an Emmy. So this so would to be, be a, the EGOT. This would be the EGOT. And to be a small part of the show that wins Elton John and EGOT, I think would be uh, would be the coolest thing I think we've ever done. Um, so we'll see. Well, I know he has said that uh, he he felt like he had never sounded better. And there is some truth to that. I mean, he sounded fantastic that night. And, you know, he's he's not a young whippersnapper anymore. So the, the fact that he could still pull off a three-hour show like that and still sound great is pretty incredible. Uh, to be entirely truthful and slightly indiscreet, I was sh- I was like shocked at how pitch perfect he was. Not because I don't think that he's amazing. I do, but I know how much work we always need to do on artists for their music specials after the event. Mm-hmm. We just do, any artist. The be- you know, the best artist in the world, you listen to it afterwards and you need to do a lot of, not a lot always, but you know, you need to do some work because singing in a recording studio in the quiet is very, very different when you've got 100,000 people screaming. It's all live instruments. His entire band is live. And so when they first came to me, I remember my first call with David Furnish, I think, um, and the Disney team, and we talked about doing this. And I said, but are we talking about live, live? Like, what about musically? You know, is this to track? Are we going to be able to have his audio that we can play in over the top of him? You know, there's different tricks that we use. And they were like, no, 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 Elton sounded great. It's going to be live, live. And I was like, uh, okay, um, is there any, is there any like backup option? You know, is there, you know, anything that we, no, no, he's standing great. It's going to be live, live. And I remember thinking at the time, 
I wondered whether they were so loyal to Elton and uh, that, that maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, they thought he was sounding better than he was or in a room, he always sounds amazing when you're in a concert always. But then when you're listening in the cold light of an audio booth, when you're just hearing that channel, it did concern me hugely. And then we got there on night one. Because obviously there's three nights. We mm-hmm. only shot the third night. But the, the first night, we just watched it. We just watched the gig. We'd all seen the gig many times because we'd travel around to see it. Doug Dell, especially the director. But the first night, we just put a mic up so we could just hear it in a booth. Second night, we did the dress run. And the third night, every single night, he was flawless. And I was shocked by it. Not not, not being re- – just because, you know, he, you know, he, he is an older performer. He has done it for years. But he sounded better than ever. And there was no – effects or no tuning or anything we did what went out was his absolute raw mic and it was really 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 remarkable and and from being in an audio booth for so many years making i've been very lucky to make music specials for some of the greatest artists in the world and um and and seeing how good his voice was was truly something yeah it was unusual yeah, no, it was remarkable because obviously, you know, having gone to many shows over the years, especially yeah. with the legacy acts, you know, sometimes people, it's hard to hit those notes that you hit 40 years ago. And, Absolutely. And, uh, but, but no, he pulled it off. Now, I do wish someone had given him a better belt. I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> like he was pulling his pants up a lot, but you know, that's he's a, just, maybe he's just lost a lot of weight. Maybe. Yeah, he's good, looking great. Good on Elton. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, anything that we didn't see that maybe like uh, could have gone wrong that night or any, any moment that, well, there was a moment that I wish we'd got where Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney were in a box together Wow! and they were, and they were dancing and I could see it, but, but it was the other side of the stadium to where our cameras were. And so we were trying to get the shot, but our zoom, our zoom lens wasn't long enough to be able to get it. Mm. And so. If you knew it was them, it's a really cool shot. But to have taken that shot, you you would have seen loads of people. You wouldn't have been able to realize who it was or what it yeah. was. So I was always a little bit disappointed that we didn't show. Because I think that in itself, seeing the Beatles and the Stones partying together, is a really iconic shot. It's amazing, yeah. So sadly, we, we, we didn't take that shot because we just couldn't get it clean. And it's live. So as soon as like you think you might have it, one goes back inside the box or whatever. We, right. we, we, we didn't get that. Um you should have given them the JPEG seats. Should have given them the JPEG seats. I'm not sure they'd have wanted the JPEG seats because no. they were on the floor. Probably not. I think that they. I think they would have been a bit hassled on the yeah. floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are there? Um, no, I think what you saw is what you got. Really, we, we you know, we did. Um, it was really, it was really a celebration. Just you know, I was watching it back in sort of preparation for for this today to chat to you, Mike, and you know, it was really amazing seeing from five-year-olds to 85 years old dressed up in Elton outfits with the glasses and the hats and the feather boas. And it was a real celebration of, of him. And I think, you know, looking back on that, it was, it was just as much about the fans as it was him in a way. It was so much a, a farewell to them. And the fact that they were dressed up in such incredible costumes, the fact that we could hear them, by the last day because mm-hmm. we'd got it right on the microphones so you could really feel the love in that stadium for him and his love for them it felt like a real celebration and a befitting tribute for him to say goodbye to america in the way that he did yeah. um and you know then he did glastonbury to say goodbye to britain and europe and he did this to say goodbye to america and they were both incredibly different shows um 
but uh you know what a way to 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 go out um and then there was the really moving moment i thought where he brought his kids out on stage which yeah. i don't think he's ever done anything like that i don't know i can't i'm not like the you know the archive specialist right. on elsa but i can't remember him ever sort of putting them front and center but i think it was really important to him and david to bring his kids out to say which is what he did say. So this is why you're not going to see me on tour again. So these two boys are the reason because I, it's time for me to spend some proper time with them. Yeah. And I just thought that was a really humanizing moment. Uh, and, you know, as he said, it's not for me to say in any way, but he said when we were doing press to promote it at the time, he said, you know, if I think about how different my life is now to what it was at that first Dodgers show, so yes, that first Dodgers show was huge and iconic and everyone remembers it. But look at me now. I'm, you know, settled and happy, married, kids, um, a, a great future ahead of him, even though it's his last show. Um, and it's sort of, yeah, it felt like a really iconic moment bringing those three out, David and the two boys. It was really quite emotional. Yeah, yeah. And and also, you know, talk about the, the guests real quick. In particular, getting Kiki D to sort of recreate... That 1975. Yeah, that was moment. fantastic. Kiki D came out, which was just great to see it. Loved seeing that. I was really excited to see that in rehearsal that day. Um, Dua Lipa came out, which was amazing. She's just so brilliant yeah. and, and did that track that everybody loved. And then Brandy Carlisle's probably one of my favorite artists today. I think Brandy is just sensational. I could, you know, I would go and see her in concert and pay to see her every night. She is just unbelievable. Yeah. And having her do that sort of George Michael moment was so incredible. And she looked so brilliant too. I, I, I really, really loved that. Yeah. And um, yeah, being a Brandy fan, that was, that was particularly exciting for me. And I know it was for her too. You know, Elton's her hero. She speaks very openly about how, El you know, Elton John changed her life. Um, and so, yeah, we had some great guest artists and, and that was really made the night even more special. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. I just saw the clip of Brandy Carlisle and Pink doing a tribute to Sinead O'Connor at one of yeah. their concerts. And yeah. that was, I saw that too. Nothing compares to you. It's really beautiful. Made me think about the Grammys quite a lot about what we're going to do at the Grammys this year. Cause there's such iconic artists that we've lost this year. Sinead, mm -hmm. Tina Turner, Tony Bennett. Yeah. It's really yeah. got me thinking about how we can do that because that was such a beautiful tribute. No. You're yeah, you you obviously you got to be thinking about this even yeah. though it's it's still August. What is it? <laughs> it's August. It's August, but you know yeah, but not you know obviously strike dependent who knows what happens, but but uh nominations are November, mm -hmm. mid-November and then the show is I think first week of February. So it creeps up on you. It yeah. comes and with music you've got to really sort of prep and plan quite a lot in advance. So you know, it's uh, the tour dates to, you know, get around and where they're like diaries aren't just empty with major artists. Yeah. So you've really got to think early about those things. Well, unlike Emmys and Oscars, which obviously are deeply impacted by the strikes, you could still pull off a, a, a Grammys, uh, you know, maybe without a script, maybe without a host as a result. But it's just like the Tonys were able to pull that off. Uh, you know, are you thinking about, OK, how do we do this if, if we kind of just have to do it during a strike? No, I haven't really given it any thought. I should. You're right. And probably as I leave this today, because of our conversation, I'm going to start thinking about oh. what it would be. I mean, I mean if, if there's still strikes in February, we're all in trouble. We but. are. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the thing that comes to mind, the issue is with the Grammys, I would say is, and I would say this because I make it, but I've always thought the Grammys was the most complicated and most difficult show on television to make because it's three and a half hours long. You've got 20 to 21 
live performances. Each of those performances has multiple people involved in it. Sometimes it can be a hundred dancers. Sometimes it can be an orchestra. Plus you've got backstage, all of the costume, makeup, security, publicist management that involved in all those a hundred people on each of those 21 performances. And then you've got the most unbelievable stage management job of you go, well, if Gaga performs here for four minutes, as soon as she's left, we then go over to do a Lipa to perform. But then that stage needs to be set for Adele to come on. And you've only got six minutes to strike Gaga's set and build Adele's one. And, and that filling time, that is a military operation where it's down yeah. to the second. So although on the last three years you've watched Trevor Noah be as cool as you like going uh, chatting somebody at a table or making a joke or wondering about what he's actually got is me in his ear going, I'm really sorry, mate. I'm going to need another 90 right. seconds because, you know, Dua Lipa's, you know, choir aren't out yet and they're not in position or there's a problem on the mic for Lizzo or whatever it might be. And so I think the difficulty you know, with a, I mean, there's many things that would be difficult if there was a strike about whether it should be done or whatever, but the fundamental logistics of how you actually pull off a show that where everything needs to be built around structure, you can't just go back to back music, 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 because it's, right. it would be an impossibility. So I haven't given it much thought yet. Uh, you know, I, my hope is that, you know, the strike will, will come to an end by then, but you never know, you know, uh, we've got, we should start planning for what happens if. Yeah, no, it's it's unprecedented times. It's looking more and more like the Emmys are going to be in January. So, Is that what they're saying? Yeah. Ja- Emmys in January? Yeah. Right. So but will the voting period still be the same? Voting period still the same. And when so, does that open? That opens on the 17th. So 17th of August, of August for a couple yeah. of weeks yeah. or whatever. And then they just hold the yep. winners in a suitcase it just, it's just a, for an extra three months. Price Waterhouse Coopers, some some person yeah. has a briefcase yeah. under their desk, who knows, yeah. for and six it, months. Yeah. And then obviously no one could have predict I mean, we're saying January, but but of course it could keep going and going. Yeah, I mean if if the strike continues, strikes plural continue yeah. beyond that, then yeah, it's it's kinda un yeah. unprecedented waters. It is indeed. It so, is indeed. Yeah. But um, how has that, I mean, has that impacted uh, your business that much sort of? In- of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think it's a really, it's a really strange time. Um, it's impacted a lot of stuff that we're doing. We, we also work a huge amount on the unscripted side. So that stuff hasn't been as impacted, although, you know, more on the reality stuff is okay. Obviously, you know, we, we have a couple of reality shows, a couple that we haven't announced yet that we're shooting. Plus, mm-hmm. we always have the Kardashians. Good old Kardashians, um, including actor, actor now, Kim Kardashian. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, some of our shows aren't impacted, but of course, a lot of them are. Um, um, so, yeah, we're standing by with interesting what, what's happening and, and hoping that some resolution can be found. Yeah, yeah. obviously, carpool karaoke. Yeah. Uh, the series, which yes. continues even though the Late Late Show has it does. ended. So, uh, but that re- requires talent. That requires celebrity participation. Yeah. So, yeah, we're not shooting now. We fin- we just finished our, I think it's our sixth season, and that's on Apple TV Plus. It got nominated in the short form category, which I'm so delighted it did. I would say it's one of our best seasons. I think it's a really, if you are bored at home and you haven't seen it uh, without new content to watch, I would, uh, there's a few, Brian, Brian, um, Brian Cox, Brian yeah. Cox and Alan Cummings yeah. did an amazing episode together of carpool where Brian, I think thought that Alan Cummings was the regular host of the Apple carpool. Cause he kept saying, <laughs> well, you've done this, you do this all the time. Right. And Alan's like, no, I've never done it before, Brian. It's just me and you. That's what we're doing. 
Um, Cara mm-hmm. Delevingne did a really amazing one with the Lannis Morris set, which I loved. And then the other one to to, to watch is Duran uh, Duran with. Um, oh my goodness, my hair, my head has just exploded. <laughs> Killing Eve, Grey's Anatomy, um, amazing actress. We all adore. Oh, Sandro. Sandro, yes, yeah. thank you, Sandro. Yeah. Sorry, I just went blank on a podcast. That's all right. You, you're, you, see, you that's could, the jet lag that we yeah, were talking about. Yeah, the jet lag. Well, you can cut that out and I'll go, Duran <laughs> Duran and Sandro O oh, was uh, phenomenal. And those yeah. episodes, are, you know, some of the best we've done. So I, I love that we're making that now six seasons in and we're still getting, you know, some incredible moments. And some of the best episodes are those episodes where those super fans like Sandra O and Cara Delevingne get to sing with their heroes because mm. you've got that sort of starstruck nature of it. And... We've been very lucky. The Emmys have been really great to carpool over the years. Yeah. I, I hope they continue to be yeah, that's, so. That's quite a few of those 12 yeah. uh, Emmys that I mentioned. Yeah, uh, it's been great. Uh, are, is there going to be more carpool karaoke? I, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, there's no discussions right now because we're in a strike. Mm-hmm. So we finished the season just before the strike and then it came in and obviously there's been no conversation since. Um, so we'll have to see where we are in whenever this strike ends yeah. and, and, and hope that we can continue to make more. So so we mentioned Grammys coming up, obviously, the reality, including Kardashians. What else can you tell me about uh, that's on your plate that you're excited about? Um, what else is on our plate? Well, the, 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 the other thing I should give a shout out to if we are talking Emmys, which was one of the things I was excited about, was the Encanto. Yes, at the, the Bowl. Encanto yeah. at the Hollywood Bowl, which, you know, Mike, it was the same team that did the Elton team. Different director, Chris Howe directed that, but Gabe Turner and Sally Wood EP'd it so brilliantly. And that, I was so delighted, got some some Emmy love. I was, although it's my company with Gabe and Leon Bennett and James, it really wasn't me who made that show. I was just in the audience enjoying it with Ruby and Grace, who actually did have a couple of nice close-ups mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in there dancing away and That's clapping cute. at the fireworks. Yeah, I had a chance to attend that too. That that was it was a, great. That was right? a cold night, it was which a really is really cold night. All the more impressive that the the, the talent was able to pull that off. It was a really it was cold freezing night. that night. Yeah, it really was. But it was amazing seeing the Hollywood Bowl uh, done up like that. And yeah. um, we've got a few things coming out. We've got Sunday until i die um we've got uh captain's new season on netflix which i'm excited about it's really great ben turner and gabe turner done an amazing job on that with sort of behind the scenes of the qatar world cup i'm um we announced recently that we're doing a doc with the nba based around the playoffs mm-hmm. um which we are building up for right now and and, and looking forward to um and then yeah just all the other stuff that keeps us busy which is which is quite a few things it's it's been really fun some exciting stuff coming up which is plenty well yeah let us know i uh, would i always always you first mike you know that. <laughs> i appreciate it ben you know well it's always always great to catch up with you and, and see you. you and uh you know c- congrats on uh, the end of the talk show i know Thank that you. was such a labor of love it and, really was yeah and sort of what a great chapter and to now move on from that uh plenty more to come so We'll talk soon, Ben. Thanks for stopping by, man. Thanks for having me. Always lovely to see you. That's Ben Winston, executive producer of the Emmy-nominated Carpool Karaoke, the series, now streaming on Apple TV+, and Elton John Live, Farewell from Dodger Stadium, now on Disney+. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Zach Levin edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest awards predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tanke, Emily Longaretta, and Clayton Davis, 
I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. This episode is brought to you by Universal Television Alternative Studios' That's My Jam, now nominated for Outstanding Game Show. Hosted by Jimmy Fallon and inspired by the most popular Tonight Show games, NBC's That's My Jam features 40 celebrities competing across a variety of games focused on music, dance, trivia, and musical performances, including Don't Drop the Beat, Wheel of Impossible Karaoke, Slay It, Don't Spray It, and more. Catch up on all episodes of That's My Jam on Peacock.